it's utterly unimportant, but I can't get it out of my head that when I came here the first time, we were moving, I believe. I'm not sure that's right. I think we'd already moved here, and a couple of weeks later, we went back to Maryland to pick up a few things, and I believe it was this time of year in 1980 that uh, we stopped at that. If any of you traveled on Interstate 87 up around uh, the northern end there where Route 4 comes in. Uh, one, I guess it's 127 comes in at uh, just above Glens Falls. I stopped at that rest stop. And as I was pulling out of that rest stop, I told the Lord, uh, Lord, I'm going to give them 10 years and then I'm out of here. Uh, and uh, the, the subject today is counting the cost. <laughs> What happens when you follow Jesus? And uh, what happens is, I could tell him whatever I want to tell him, but he's going to do whatever he wants to do. And there's nothing we can do about it. You know, he he will sometimes re- re- respond deep in my heart. Uh, yeah, right, Bob. Sure you are. You know, I I don't remember a response then, but I do remember thinking at the time that uh, that was a little uh, obnoxious of me, and. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about discipleship today, and I'm going to attempt to do it. I've got a complicated message, and uh, it's probably too complicated for me. And uh, I want you to understand that uh, we who count ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ are, as less clearly prayed, fallen, broken, and only stumbling as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I make it sound uh, impossible... It's because following Jesus is impossible without Jesus in our heart. And we're we're sometimes following, and many times he's got us by the hand and he's dragging us forward. So don't feel inadequate or impossible, but do, do in fact, count the cost of what it means uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we pass, we're in the, we're in Luke we're in Luke chapter fourteen I had hoped to get into fifteen but there's just too much here, um, and he's he's in Perea he's still in that area uh, controlled by King Herod and he hasn't made it to Jerusalem yet and he's not going to for a couple of more chapters uh, and this is he's on his last trip to Jerusalem and Luke tells us and there were great multitudes with him. I should have stopped it there and I should have put the next phrase at the beginning of the next verse. Uh, not, not that the Bible did it wrong, it's just for my speaking. Uh, you know, a lot of us who call ourselves pastors, preachers, called of God, once the multitudes start to gather around, we start thinking about book deals, uh, maybe getting, I remember I went to a church once where the pastor had the fastest growing church in America. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, Jesus would have qualified for that. He could have had a heck of a book deal out of this. You know, how, how to gather 10,000 people in a hurry. Uh, you know, but he, he could see through their hearts. He understood what was in man, John tells us. You know, uh, He didn't get caught up in the crowds. We would. We're only human, but he knew. He knew what was going on. Now, Brown, Jameson Fawcett Brown says this trip to Jerusalem should be connected to the Passover. That these crowds of people are also on their way to Passover, as Jesus is. Um, but um, seeing Jesus and the healings, they they saw this crowd, and it just got kind of 
enthusiastic about all that was going on. These just great mobs. And, and, and in, instead of holding a revival service, which I would have thought he might do, he actually turns and he says to them, oh, let me get to the next one for you. If any man come after me, and you notice the word is italicized. Italicized in the King James Version means it's, it's an ellipsis. It was left out. It was understood, but it was left out. It wasn't necessary because the verbs all have gender. Uh, but in this case, it means if anyone, if anybody would come after me and hate not his father and his mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Robertson tells us hateth not is... Uh, Exaggerated contrast. Uh, cooler spirits might speak of preference or indifference. Clearly in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 4, Jesus teaches us to love our parents, to obey our parents, and even in their old age to provide for their parents. I might underline that now that I'm reaching old age. But when our parents oppose Christ, or attempt to hinder our walk with him. I remember telling my mother when I was first called to preach, I sat down at the table, I remember it very clearly, and I said, you know, I believe God's calling me to the ministry. And she goes, you're going to quit your job teaching? And I said, yeah, I think I am. What do you think about that? And she said, I think you ought to do whatever God's leading you to do. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know? And I said, what do you think Dad would think? Dad had been dead years now. Uh, she said, I don't know but I don't think it'd stand in your way. But the point is, if she just said, Bob, that's not a good idea. How will you provide for your family? She didn't go through any of that, which I expected. You know, you're going to starve. You're not going to be able to pay for your house. You're going to this, you're going to that. She did none of that, which was good. But had she done that, I should have said, I'm sorry, Mom, but I have to do what he's calling me to do. We must not hesitate to follow Christ, even when it's unpopular. I'll tell you, it's easy to get off on a sidetrack and think we're following Christ and we're not following Him. So you want to do it with great humility and with great prayer and with great assurance from the Holy Spirit that you are in fact being led in that direction. I remember, uh, Mother never said anything to me about it, but a year later when I felt like I was at an incredibly low point and failing, I mean failing miserably, uh, in being able to provide for my family, and, I, and, and it was my fault. It was my fault because anyone that said something to me said, well, how are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to this? How are you going to that? And I said, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. You know, me, great man of faith that I am. You know, so God wanted to make sure that uh, I had something to trust him for. He made my life a perfect hell for that first year. And I remember walking down by this fence in Chattanooga and having this little discussion with God and saying, Lord, I, I, I don't know what to do, but if, uh, if I have to go home and tell my mother I've failed, I'm willing to do that. I'm going to keep going until I get kicked out of here. And that was a turning point for me. The turning point really was that God, I was, it's a very long story. I've told some of you the whole story, but I was looking for a welding on a part that was very hard to weld. And I was walking to a shop. And anyway, it just so happened, you know, coincidence with God. There's no such thing. 
the guy was the mayor of Dalton, Georgia, who ran this welding shop. And I said, do you got anybody here who can weld uh, magnesium? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we got all the way back corner back there. We're walking back there. He said, you're not a carpenter, are you? And I said, what made you say that? He said, well, only a carpenter would wear a hat as stupid as the one you're wearing. And I, <laughs> I thought, yeah, I am a carpenter. And from that point on, God provided work all the way through seminary. Up for that first six or seven months, there was nothing. I was going to trust God. You know, trusting God sometimes means you you don't cuss the guy out who called your hat funny, and you take the job that he offers you. Great guy. It was nice working for him. Craig and I both worked for him and got us through that part of seminary. We worked all the way, even when we changed seminaries, the work just continued. But the point is, you have to be willing to follow him. He also says, and hate his own life also. You know, I, I, for most of us, that doesn't mean we're going to die, but for some of us, it does. Some of us, we're going to be driving up on uh, Interstate 87, trying to get home for a vacation, and we'll be killed. It happens, you know. Sometimes, you know, bad things happen to God's people. We have to be willing to follow him. And hate his own life only. When I think of Tom and Megan, who were just here just a few months ago, and those, those lovely kids they have, trying, attempting to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Muslim country, I often think this, they're obviously taking their kids into danger, considerable danger. And yet, what else can they do when God calls? What is their choice? They decided that following Jesus was more important than even their own lives, than even their children's lives. Years ago, I mean many years ago when we first came here, a seminary friend, acquaintance is probably more accurate, came by and he wanted me to help him make a shipping crate. I, I think we did. I, I think I remember working on it. We made a shipping crate for him as he was moving to Africa. And then his family came by. He had three lovely little girls, and uh, Clint and Kathy Aikens. I don't remember the girls' names. They were just little girls at that time. And I remember one of our members, after he'd given his presentation, said, you're going to take those little girls to Africa? You know, you're going to take them to Africa? And he said, of course. He said, what could be a safer place than where God wants me to be? And that, that was a good point. And by the way, for what it's worth, he, uh, his daughters are all now, they're not all in the ministry now, but they're all grown, they're all married, they all have children of their own. His wife has passed away, but not because of their ministry. She, she died of some, some brain tumor, I think. Uh, Clint has remarried, and he's living as a retired missionary and pastoring a very small church in Florida. God saw them through it. But while they were gone, talking about counting the cost, family members became sick and even died, and they couldn't get home in time. Things happened. Their nieces and nephews grew up. They didn't get to see them. I've got nieces and nephews that I barely know. In fact, I always have to rehearse their names before I go home because I can't remember their names. Part of it is Linda's fault. Her, her sister had eight kids. No one can remember the eight kids' names. Even their mother has trouble with that. You know, and now the eight kids have married, and they have eight kids. Of, no, that's not true. They all have children of their own. And anyway, it's quite an event. But the fact is that they missed out on a lot of family life. That's the cost of following Jesus Christ. Your, your life is not your own. There's, there's no way to get around that. Well, why 
Clicky, clicky. I'll make it, maybe they'll make an audible mouse. I'd probably have more trouble with that. The promise from Jesus is there's no man that had left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. You know, the disciples said, we've given up all to follow you. What will we get? And this is his response. And brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. He speaks this from experience. Jesus was truly God's missionary. He left a pretty good job. He was running the universe. He left his family and friends. His seat was on the right hand of God the Father, who was also running the universe with him. His family was the angelic host. He left a great geography. His home was heaven. I I have to imagine there were times while he was trudging along these dusty roads that he was reminding himself that he needed to count the cost as well. You know, I doubt if he'd ever walked 50 miles in heaven. He had angelic chariots to carry him everywhere. Not that I know anything at all about heaven, but it sounds like transportation is not an issue. I may be wrong. But Paul reminds us very clearly that we should let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the express image of God, the word form, who being in the express image of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, didn't think it was something to be held tightly onto, but made himself of no reputation. All these people criticizing him. You're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you should be this, you should be that. I think, do they know who they're talking to? You know. Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then Jesus says to us through Luke, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Now they knew what a cross was. Everybody in those days, ever since Antiochus Epiphanes, knew what a cross was. They'd been crucifying Jews for 250 years. It was common enough in Palestine. Folks in those days were used to seeing convicted criminals carrying their cross, either the cross member or dragging the whole cross. They were used to seeing these men dying in agony, nailed to a cross. Boy, if that wouldn't discourage you from following Jesus, nothing will, you know. In my mind, it's roughly the equivalent of being forced to dig your own grave before they shot you in the head. You know, it's not something you look forward to. Now, I have always seen this phrase, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I've always seen this phrase as me dying to the things that keep me from serving him. Because even though I set out to serve him, there's a lot of things that keep me from saying, yes, I'll do that, or yes, I'll do that, or I'll go over here, or, you know. There's a lot of times that the Holy Spirit will nudge me and I'll pretend I didn't feel the nudge, you know. 
Most people that read this verse see that Jesus is saying to us, we need to be ready to give up our lives for the cause of Jesus Christ, regardless of what that calling is in our lives. To follow him regardless of personal cost. It might be financial. It might be physical. It might be our very lives. Regardless, bearing our crosses, setting aside or dying to anything that's keeping us from serving him, from letting him be Lord of our life. Now, to be honest with you, there are those that would separate between being saved, coming forward in a church. I don't even invite people forward. I want you to invite him into your heart, in your own personal heart, and I want to see the change in your life. But there are a lot of churches where they'll invite you forward, you, you pray to receive Christ, and you go back and you sit down. And that's great. I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not putting that down. But, but there seems to be a lot of people that want to separate between that experience of receiving Christ as your Savior and following Christ as your Lord. You know, and they, they, they think, they think, well, I don't know what they think. They don't tell preachers what they think. But they seem to think that I've got my ticket and I'm good. You know, that's a very common criticism of Southern Baptists that they get their ticket to heaven and they live any way they want to. And they have a ticket, but it, it, ain't, it ain't going to heaven. Uh, it's going somewhere, but it's not going to heaven. Some will try to separate salvation from discipleship. But if you're saved, the Holy Spirit has got you on a path that he's not going to let up on. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God will keep us and he'll see to it that we grow. Now, I don't mean to say we go from receiving Christ and two days later, we're in the lion's den. It doesn't work that way. But it's a lifetime of yielding to his will in our life. It's a lifetime of learning. Disciple is a learner. It's a lifetime of walking and growing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's possible to separate my salvation from my discipleship. I think every saved person is on they're enrolled in the course called Discipleship, Jesus 101. And if our lives are not conforming, if you can look back in your life and you can say, my life is not conforming to His will. My life is not conforming to what you're talking about. You need to go back and check your salvation because something's wrong. Something's wrong if the Holy Spirit hasn't come into your life. Something's wrong if when you can do something, something inappropriate and the Holy Spirit doesn't rebuke you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, something's wrong. You need to go back and check your relationship. You know, you can come up here, we can pray, we can talk, that's fine. But what you need to get with is the Holy Spirit and talk and find out why do I not hear the Holy Spirit in my life? I, I, I distinctly remember when I would do things. I was a brand new Christian, never even, I never connected being a Christian and going to church. I, I never realized Christians went to church that tells you a lot about the churches I went to. Uh, you know, but I, I never connected the two. But after I got saved and I started to, you know, I'd start to do something and, and, and the Holy Spirit would say, that's wrong. And I knew it was wrong. I knew it as soon as he said it. He didn't even need to say it, but he had to say it because I needed to hear his voice. If we're not conforming to his leadership. We don't belong to him. And Paul talks about folks like that. He's writing Titus, he says, they profess that they know God, but in works, in what they do, they're denying him. They deny him with their works would be probably a better way to say that sentence. 
being abominable, disobedient, and to every good work, reprobate. Now, the word reprobate means without principle. So they might be doing good works, but for the wrong principle. They're operating in the wrong spirit. It's the wrong thing. It might appear good, but it's without the right motive, if you will. Jesus told us that there would be many in that boat. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Lord means boss. If you don't do what the boss says, if you're not doing the will of his Father, you're just using the word. You're just making a mockery out of the word Lord. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. I actually had a woman say that to me, and I know you've heard that story too many times. She actually said it to me. She said, how will you know that you're going to get in heaven? Well, I've cast out devils. But you know, even the Jews that were lost cast out devils. Anyway. And in thy name done many wonderful works. We've done all these things in your name. We've taught Sunday school. We've this, we've that. And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You may have done all these great things. And that's good. I mean, I'm glad you did all these great things. We need those things. But I never knew you. And you never knew me. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Well, following Jesus requires not only a willingness to die physically, but also a dying to our own selves, to our own dreams and plans. I had great plans for my life. Well, by most people's standards, they were just little paltry plans. But I, to me, they were great plans. I wanted to have a quiet little life down by the waterfront on the eastern shore of Maryland. I had a lot of plans and my desires and ideas of my own future. I had it all. I didn't have it really all mapped out in my mind, but I knew where I was headed. I was like that turtle that was born in the sand and he knew the direction he was headed. You know. But following Jesus requires a willingness to die to our own selves, to our own plans. And Jesus reminds us here to count the cost. Well, people say, well, isn't salvation free? Well, it is free. It is free. And, and, and I, I, I can't pull up the guy's name. He made a great illustration that I'm pulling from, but I should have written it down. Uh, the illustration is flying. Say you have a friend that flies. He's got a little plane. And he says, here, let's go for a ride. I'll pay for the fuel. Dick Canal did that to me. Some of you are old enough to know Dick Canal. Dick Canal was a two-tour uh, Vietnam helicopter pilot who struggled with, I, I don't know if it was PTSD or adrenaline highs. I don't really know what the issue was with Dick. But uh, the way they got him out of the mental state he was in is they made him a crop duster. And he was living here and going to our church as a crop duster. And we, just, we loved the guy. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I believe I heard he passed away. I, I'm not sure about that. But I'm riding around. We were trying to visit people. We, we were in my car. And we were trying to visit a couple of people that had visited our church, and we wanted to just sit down and talk with them, which doesn't work too well in Vermont. People are just too busy up here. But we were trying to do that, and unfortunately for me, we were driving down Route 30, and we passed the airport. And he said, hey, I knew what he was going to say. 
let's go for a ride. You know, and I'm starting to think, yeah, oh my God, it's free. No, 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 I don't know, Dick. I'm trying to think of any excuse. I couldn't come up with any excuse. I said, okay. So the point is, even though it's a salvation is free, it's a free ride, you're really committing your life to the pilot. And with Dick and Al, you are committing your life to the pilot. You know, you know I, I forget who I was talking to. It was at the funeral last week. That I was talking to someone. They, they got the same treatment. Um, but in my case, he wanted to impress me what it was like to slip in. Do you know what slipping is mean for a pilot? They turn it up this way. And it drops like a rock this way. So he, he's on the left side. If he'd have been kind, he would have turned it up that way. But he turned it up on my side and slip, you slip in this way, see? So we dropped from, I don't know, 1,000 feet down to 50. He's a, down to whatever the height of an apple tree is. And I'm looking out the window and the ground's coming up at me like I don't have a parachute or an airplane. And he goes, does that bother you? I said, no, but does the vomit on the window bother you? <laughs> we flew over the house and Linda was in the house in the backyard and, and he wagged his wings and she said, I thought that might be you. And I thought, this will be the last time I'll see my wife alive. You know, the ride was free. But it cost you your life. Right? For us, you know, it's a reminder that new life in Christ requires a death to the old life. You can't have new life until the old life dies. What shall we say then, Paul? Right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Christians sometimes think that, but it's not true. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It's not true. Now, I'm skipping some if you know these verses. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. We were our old man died with Christ when we received him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We're supposed to be serving Christ. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You know, we, we don't realize that sin has no power over us. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto, reckon is, to, is, a, is an accountant's term, it means to count on it, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It can't reign because it's broken, but we can let it reign. We can allow sin to come back into our life and tell us what to do, but we don't need to. So don't allow it. That's what Paul's saying. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You know, employers and, and, and sometimes in marriages and sometimes our parents, they require obedience, you know. But sometimes when we're obedient to them, their desires are different from what God wants. It's okay. Just do this. It's okay. Go here. It's okay. Let's do that. But if what they want differs from what God wants from us, we have to find a submissive manner and a respectful approach and simply say to them, I can't do that. As Peter did when he was ordered by the Supreme Court of Israel not to speak the name of Jesus. And he said, sirs, we must obey God and not man. He wasn't being disrespectful. There's no need to be rude. But there's times you just have to stand up and be counted. Now, this is on counting the cost on building a tower. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost while they have sufficient to pay it? Now, the purpose of this tower is not important. 
It might have been for protection, some kind of a watchtower or a tower on the, the wall of the community. It might have simply been a decoration in your yard where you could sit up there and watch your vegetables grow. We don't know what the tower is for. What matters is you don't want to begin a project you don't have the commitment to finish. See, that's the point. Lest happily, Jesus said, clicky, clicky, lest happily after you've laid the foundation and is not able to finish it. All that beholdeth shall begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, the world loves it when a Christian fails. They love it when you fail. They really do. It gives them an opportunity to make fun of you, but worse, make fun of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I've, I've often told you probably 15 times this year of how I was saved sitting in a bed, just finishing up a book and put out my cigarette and prayed to receive Christ. At that time, I never counted the cost. I had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, in a, in a large part, after 50 years, I still don't know what I'm doing. You know, when I first bowed my head and sought forgiveness and salvation, I, I was transitioned to an entirely different world and didn't understand it. I never, I never considered what it might mean for my future. So every challenge after that became a question, well, are you, are you willing to go this far? Are you willing to go this far? Are you willing to go? That's the way the Holy Spirit works with us. If, if he just showed me everything that was going to happen in my life back there on that bed, I might have said no. I don't know if this is true for all of us or not. But for me, every year brings a new challenge to my faith. You know, in the beginning, it was, would I just give up working on Sundays and go to church? I used to work seven days a week, you know, and Sunday morning was a great time to get some of my own work done because I was teaching school and trying to do a cabinet shop, and I had a house that I was remodeling. And then we started going to church, and then Linda wanted to go to Sunday school, and so we ended up taking two cars to church. She'd go to Sunday school, and I'd stay for the last. 22 seconds of work, which everything always went wrong uh, when I tried to do something on Sunday morning. and finally decided it would save me money if I just didn't try to work on Sunday mornings. Uh, but I would rush back so I could get some work done. But the first thing was, would I give up working on Sunday and go to church instead? And then and then, so a year or two later, so would, I, would I be willing to tie 10% of my gross? I, 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 that was such a fight with me and God. I thought it was unfair to pay 10% of what I had to pay the tax man to. It was like double dipping on the government. I thought that was cheating me. Uh, it took a while to get past that. Would I give up my selfishness? Would I give my time to teaching Sunday school? And then my pastor asked me that time. He said, I'm going to go out preaching in view of a call. That means he was trying to get out of that church and go to another church. He said, would you preach for me? And I said... No. And then later, well, actually, his exact words were, when you get ready, I'd like you to preach. And then later, months later, he said, you're preaching for me on Sunday. He didn't even ask. He just said, be there or I'll kill you. <laughs> and then ultimately is would I sell my house? Would I quit my job? Would I go back to school? Would I start all over again? You know, would I be willing to do this? Stand up in front of people and talk about Jesus. Salvation is the free gift of God. There's no question about that. Through simple faith in Jesus, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
So yeah, you have a shift of ownership there. So you don't really see that until you read all, all those three verses. Receiving that gift costs us everything. Now, in a sense, it doesn't cost us anything because all we're giving up is death and destruction and decay. And all we're getting is power and life and eternity. So when we say, oh, I'm giving up my old life, you've got to realize your old life is a dying, decaying corpse. And your new life is breathing life and joy and wonder. So, you know, I remember George Jackson used to always say, yeah, yeah, I had to give up my Ford, but God gave me a Cadillac. You know, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. We're trading decay for eternal life. But at the same time, from the standpoint of the lost world, we're really giving up something precious to us. My life, you know. What a joke. Our lives then become his to lead. Our property becomes his to control. Jesus says, count the cost. What king going to make a war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? The numbers are skewed there a little bit. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador in desired conditions of peace. Following Jesus is like going to war. And the enemy is everywhere. The enemy is in you. The enemy is yourself. The enemy is your flesh. The enemy is your devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil is the way that John talked about it. Satan wants to trip us up at every juncture. And yet Jesus is always there to help bring the victory. But it's not possible for us to win this fight alone. Because it's not really our fight. Like the, like the song says, the battle belongs to the Lord. But when we turn to follow the Lord Jesus Christ into eternity and to serve him, we've turned against the tide of a world that's headed to destruction. I love that little... Introduction to the chosen that have all those fish swimming in one direction, and then this one fish turns and swims in the other direction because that's a beautiful example of what it's like to be saved. You're all of a sudden swimming against the school of fish. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around, Bob. You've lost your mind. Are you crazy? What happened to you? Do you know? An issue is not just, you know, will we receive him as our Savior and, and, uh, and get this little ticket punched to heaven and go about our daily lives. That's not Christianity at all. Um, it's also not, will you add this Christianity to your other list of do-gooder things that you're doing to please God? That's not it at all either. It's abandoning everything we've ever done and everything we're ever going to do and turning our life completely over to him for the long haul. It's a lifetime of training. Jesus 101, beginning discipleship, but it goes all the way up to graduate level. Will we, in fact, trust him with all our fears and phobias enough to step out of our comfort zone? Will we trust him? Will we let him lead and empower and bring us to victory while we give him the glory? Give him the glory while we're going through all of this? Will we do that? Will we live where he leads us to live? I mean, for me, it was coming to Vermont. I, I didn't even know where Vermont was. Uh, when Mike called and said, I put your name in in a little church in Middlebury, Vermont, I had to go look on a map to find out where Vermont was. I mean, I knew it was up here. I mean, I wasn't that geographically stunted, but I couldn't remember whether it was the right side state or the upside down state, you know. 
I was glad to find out it was the right side up state, not the upside down state. But now that I've been here a while, I kind of wish it was the upside down state because they, all, all the conservative Vermonters have fled to New Hampshire. You know, they, they had to move. They were driven out by the liberals. Uh, but God called me to the right side up state. I'm not complaining about that. Will you live where he leads you to live? Where you work, where he provides work for you? Will you trust him with your future? That's the questions that are asked before you ever come up looking for a ticket to heaven. And my point, of course, and I've made it over and over probably too many times, is that the cost of discipleship is that these are not one-time questions. This is a lifelong journey that you were on with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lifetime of choices made on a daily basis. So you have to count the cost. And then Jesus is wrapping this up. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's powerful stuff. I have to imagine the crowd stepped back a little. Hmm. You know. Is there something in our lives that's more important than Jesus? Then we can't be his disciple. Is there something we can't let go of if he calls us to let go of it? Then we can't be his disciple. And if, he can't be, if we can't be his disciple, he cannot be our Lord. And if he cannot be our Lord, he didn't die for us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Many, many in that day will come and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and done that and done this other thing? And I will say, and be gone from me. You workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. That's horrible verses. This is my happy Thanksgiving sermon. Jesus wraps it up by saying this. Now, th this message is to the multitude that's on the easy road following Jesus to Jerusalem, the Messiah. You know, they're all excited. And you know, this is like throwing cold water on them. Source in their climate probably be better, probably a better example of throwing hot water on them because it's already hot. But they're on their way, and they're following Jesus. So likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, I have to give up everything just to walk with you. No way, no way. Yes, way. Jesus said, you have to give it all up. And then this little phrase to his disciples here: Salt is good. I mean, salt preserved their food. Salt made it tasty. Salt got them through the world in which we live. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith it shall all be salted? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear. Talking to his boys. Talking to you and me. Let him hear. If our lives don't reflect the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, our salt has lost its savor. If our lives reflect the way of the world, our salt has lost its savor. How can we expect to be light and salt if we're not willing to be different? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together, for this opportunity to share in your scriptures. Thank you for the challenge, Father, that you give us every day. Thank you for the choice, the freedom to say no. 
Thank you that when we say yes, Father, our life takes a whole wonderful new turn. Lord, should there be someone here that has not taken this step, I pray with great seriousness they would consider what it means to follow Jesus. And having decided that it is worth it, they would simply pray, Lord, I have failed. I admit I'm a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and put me on that road to heaven. And I know, Father, that if they'll pray that prayer in the name of Jesus, you will change their lives forever. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.